0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 446. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. This week's interview is with Michelle Sederberg, Michelle's a professional speaker, author, coach, and consultant who believes that personal and professional success are directly influenced by how well we harness the physical, mental, and emotional capacity we each have within us. In this conversation with Michelle, we discuss her latest book, The Success Energy Equation, How to Regain Your Focus, Recharge Your Life, and Really Get Shit Done, published by Page Two. We look at what has caused and how to deal with the 21st century and a quarter stress. The importance of creating good goals. The difference between good and great goals. Why we need to marry our personal and professional selves. Sleep and much more. You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Michelle Sederberg, how great to have you on this. Yet another page to author on my show. You have produced in October 2020, The Success Energy Equation, How to Regain Your Focus, Recharge Your Life, and Really Get SHIT Done. Uh, yours, yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't censor, but you know, I'm just trying to read what's on the script. And, uh, and this is your second book. Congratulations on it. I really enjoyed the read. In your own words, Michelle, how
1: would you like to describe yourself? Well, great to be here, mentor. Um, How do I describe myself? I am a speaker, coach, author, who speaks on resilience, what I call success energy as per the book title, um, really just trying to empower people to live their uh, best, happiest, most energetic lives through my speeches and coaching and, and writing. And I've been doing this for 17 years, hard to believe. Brilliant. Well, um, I I suspect you've read Angela Duckworth's
0: Grit, uh, all about building, resilient, great book. Yeah, I think it's a really necessary topic. The fact that you published it mid-pandemic, what did that do for you? Or how did that sit?
1: Well, you know, it's very interesting because I finished writing the first uh, draft of the manuscript January 2020 and submitted it to the publishers, to the editors and thought, all right, we'll just see how this goes. By October, when it's supposed to come out, I've got a whole bunch of speeches lined up. I'm gonna go and see my audiences. I'm gonna sell a bunch of books. And then of course in March, the world had other ideas. The very interesting thing though, mentor, is is I went through, it was was almost a gift because I had more time and focus to spend with the manuscript and the editing and, and all of that. And so as I was going through that process, I normally would have been on a plane going from here to there to speak. I I got a real sense of the fact that this book could potentially be um, of help to people as we navigate the pandemic. And at the time, I thought, you know, tops a couple months and we'll be through this and we'll be resetting our lives. But, you know, as you know, we're now coming on close to two years. And I I call the Success Energy Equation kind of an unofficial pandemic survival guide because it will help people regain focus and recharge their lives. And as you said, really get SHIT done.
0: It's it's peculiar. I mean, I, I love talking about energy. And as little as we had to do in the pandemic, I mean, essentially, you're locked down. So you're not jumping in cars, running, but, you know, taking kids to sports or doing a million things, flying on airplanes to visit other audiences, taking your lovely Isla out for a walk, presumably that's amongst the big activities that, we you know, part, marked your day. But for the rest we're we're, we're we're kind of in rest mode almost and yet I felt so many people in depths uh, lacking energy and oh I was gosh. just wondering how how do you how do you then in that type of environment get people re-energized because if you will I think that's where a lot of people still are in their minds
1: yeah I mean it's it's been a, a challenge now as we stretch into you know year two of of Pandemic restricted living is what I'm calling it. Our stress levels are higher than they've ever been, and you know, despite the fact that we stopped the the busyness of life when we all got relegated to lockdown, we didn't stop the stress. And so, despite the, we, we no longer had the outlets, the lunches with friends, or the exercise classes that we could go to, or the people that would be meeting uh, just casually on the streets or what have you. We no longer had that. Those stress relief uh, outlets were now gone. We were n- worried about the pandemic. We were worried about our jobs. We were worried about our kids' schooling. We were worried about so many things that we had no control over and we didn't have our n- regular outlets. And that has just kept on going. And, and you know, as you know, COVID keeps moving the finish line and, and that, that stress in and of itself, that uncertainty has further decreased decrease our energy. One of the things I've been talking about in my presentation is we can't keep asking, when are we gonna reach the finish line? We have to ask ourselves, what must I do to keep going? What are the small things that I can do to just keep my energy you know, moving along, shall we say?
0: Yeah, and for some, it's actually getting kickstarted again and, and feeling, not woe is me, victim of the situation. And, and getting re-energized in this new situation, which obviously not only is the finish line moving, but whatever is after the finish line won't be anything like what was before either. So it's hard for people to readjust. And, that, and so I was wondering for you, as you were diving in and re-editing, how much did you feel you had to adjust as the situation was becoming more and more clear? Obviously, you know, January, it's sort of, you're three months before it, roughly. I'm guessing, and then all of a sudden, it's you're in the thick of it. Did you have to do much cherry picking, editing to to make it feel more relevant, or or did you feel like no? It was you already- know, and
1: I had this discussion with my editor. How much do we talk about the pandemic? And 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 honestly, I want this book to be a bit more timeless than a global pandemic. And eventually this pandemic is going to be behind us and life is going to continue forward. And I don't want people to be reading this book two or three years from now and getting that reminder of the stress of the pandemic. It, it, it is and it will be and it was. And um, so I did mention, you know, global, global health crises in there. I think there's a couple places where I mentioned that. But for the most part, it is dealing with the highs and lows of life as it's thrown at us in its varied forms, and you know that's very different for everyone. But I think most of us can agree that we're dealing with more stress than we ever have before. In the book, I call it 21st and a quarter century stress. This, you know, uh, pervasive, unrelenting, tech-fed, FOMO-driven um, stress because we're connected to our devices, and because certainly during the pandemic. Our devices have been our conduit to the outside world, to connect with our families, to connect with the office, to connect with the news, to connect to entertainment through our little handheld supercomputers. And so that, you know, we've got that 21st and a quarter century stress bogging down our brain. And then we've got the stress of the outside world compounding it. And we're not giving ourselves those opportunities to just stop and go, what do I need for myself right here, right now? And I think that that's part of the message I want to carry on even beyond the pandemic, because that is life. It's life now. It was life before the pandemic. It'll be life after the pandemic. How do we slow down long enough to get super clear about what we want for ourselves, you know, in this one wonderful life that we get to journey through?
0: Right. So I want to get into good goals, great goals uh, in a moment, and certainly this uh, 21st century and a quarter, stress. I uh, just want to ask you one more thing. It's sort of a meta type question and it's author to author. When you write a book uh, and, and you state certain things, I, uh, when I write, I then have to look at that statement and, and try to carry out a level of subjective or objectivity. Am I actually um, modeling that behavior? and there and i wrote a book about empathy and and for sure after having written it i've been told multiple times that that wasn't very empathic so the point is that while you can write something it's not because the words are on the paper that it's always your truth so you, you obviously want to present the truth and have authenticity my question to you michelle was to what extent or how did the very writing of the book change you? Did it have, did it make you go down any paths that you weren't expecting? Or was it all something just flew, you know, just came right out of you with great fluidity?
1: No, I mean, I I always learn when I write, I don't know if the same, same as you, I have insights that I realize, you know, I'm, I'm writing about this. I'm not doing this in my own life right now. I Mm -hmm. need to reconnect with with that aspect of whatever it is I'm writing about. Um, certainly, uh, you know, the goals piece in the book, You know, I talk about writing it out, down my goals, but I hadn't been. Um, and certainly every time that I write, there's areas that I delve into that I, re- that I then realize I definitely need to spend more time being better at this. And, and I reread my books. Uh, you know, I, I have another book called Energy Now, Small Steps to an Energetic Life, and I re- reread it. Uh, during the pandemic and was reminded of, geez, you know, this is, this is good stuff. <laughs> I, should probably, <laughs> I should probably check in with myself because, yeah, I'm I'm human. I'm imperfect. And certainly during COVID, I didn't exercise as much and probably drank more wine and, and, <laughs> and did all those things that much of the world did and, and need a reset as much as anybody else does. So the book is no. always a good reminder <laughs> of yeah, my I mean, imperfections. Yeah,
0: and I think that it's like you said. Actually, with regard to goals, writing them down has a has a, a material impact on your ability to achieve them. And the fact that you write the book then becomes words that are out there, and you then kind of it's a w- great way to hold yourself to account, uh, just like you write when you write your goals. Anyway, that's in my experience. I was wondering about that. You do write in the book about how the busyness you were caught up in it in the writing. Of course, in the editing, you, the, the busyness out the window and, and you were with your husband and, and I, I assume the lovely Scottish dog, uh, Isla, uh, drinking a few scotches too, perhaps. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, we I... went off to New Zealand right after I finished writing the book, you know, so the dog, uh, the dog wasn't in existence. She, she, uh, she came during COVID, but um uh, when I was away and separated from the stress of the busyness of travel that I had been my life pre-COVID, um, and I was away with my husband and I was riding my bike and doing all those things that we did there, a lot of the edits and things for the book became very clear to me. And I came back to to page two and I said, I, I need to do a rewrite before I submit the final transcript. And so it's, it's in those moments when we have quiet and calm that we sometimes you know do our best work or have our best awarenesses i don't think we're giving ourselves enough of those times
0: i so agree with that uh, i was talking with a journalist the other day who does this great french podcast and in his intro music there's a a gap a pause and just like in music the, the uh, actually the pause the pregnant pause it it stimulates the the neurons just as much as the the wonderful solos and music that's happening around it. So those those pauses are, are, you know, the gaps between words, the the shower between meetings or whatever, or after a run. Um, So I wanna dive into your 21st and a a quarter stress. It's a concept that I, I found really engaging and yet, I was very inquisitive as to how is it different, and if you are born in it, uh, how is that different than, let's say, when you were born out of it?
1: Wow, that's a good question. You know, if, you know, I'm yeah, at, at 52 years old. I'm one of those people that has gone from a life without the devices, and you know, the early With onset it. of the flip phone and and all of that. And then, you know, coming now into this, I, you know, I can't live without it, but I really don't want to have it some days. Uh, and then the younger generation, my nieces who are, you know, 18 and 23 and they've never not known it. And, and I, I, I think that they are dealing with a different kind of stress when it comes to FOMO or device addiction or 21st and a quarter century stress. Um, as, as a 52-year-old, you know, I definitely feel the burden of trying to keep up um, for my business and, you know, for for my, you know, trying to remain relevant with my audiences or what have you. But, uh, yeah, it, it's I think it's going to be different for different generations for sure. And certainly my 88-year-old mother has a different view on it as well because she has one of my old cell phones that she utilizes poorly to you know make phone calls that she has a difficult time making because it's a slide and not a touch and you know mm-hmm. she was quite proud of herself over the pandemic because she le- learned to use zoom to go to her uh, zoom church <laughs> so it's very different. but and that causes her stress her very limited access to technology causes her stress and you know the exactly. rest of us were immersed in it and yeah I think I think a, what we all need to do is kind of check in with ourselves and ask you know how is how is 21st and a quarter century stress impacting me personally how is my connection to the, my device impacting my relationships and my attention span and my ability to do the things that i want to do because uh, you know if it's a problem then you need to stop and say all right i need to detox or i need to meditate or find those moments of pause you know mm. it's it's uh it's it's unique to everyone and i think something that we all need to pay attention to
0: so, the follow up question to it then, as I was sort of intrigued by the whole thing, is what about the second quarter, like the 21st century and second quarter stress? Do you have a regard as to how it could be different? Because, I mean, I just, I got sort of, I got up to 2025 in my mind, and I'm thinking, oh, that's a long way away anyway. I mean, it feels like it's such a, it's going to be so different already. And so, was your, was your desire to not try to worry about how it's going to be because it's going to be so different it's impossible to prognosticate i was wondering yeah
1: i'm i mean our our devices and our technology they're not going away i think that our relationship to them needs to change and i'm hoping that it will through you know a little bit of awareness and if if i can create some of that through a discussion around twenty-first and a quarter-century stress. Then I'm I'm happy to, um, you know, the devices are designed to hook our neural pathways in the same way um, as gambling and addiction do, and and uh, you know have us every single day going through a you know a dopamine cortisol cycle of good stress bad stress all day long, that a lot of us aren't even aware of. And so my hope is that you know, we'll certain that we'll reach a certain threshold and say enough. I can't, you know, I'm feeling the burden of it. And I need to find ways to mitigate that stress. I need to find ways to feel better throughout the day. And I, I I think that it's coming in small ways. I mean, more people are aware of meditation, more people are aware of the power of music, more people are aware of the benefits of exercise in nature. You know, those small little breaks we give ourselves from, uh, from, technology in the book i talk about making and doing you know using your hands and being active and when you're doing that you can't be holding a device and it's a bit freeing i i started baking pandemic bread at the beginning of the, of the pandemic and it was you know it was at first because i'd never baked bread but afterwards i realized that when i'm in it you know it's just very meditative meditative you know i've i've, I've i i i can not do anything else but be there with that thing well, of course, the the cynic
0: might say, "Well, you can put your bloody earbuds in and still listen to a podcast. But um I love that notion of your your hands in the dough so you can't really touch the dial. And it, it reminds me of a, another wonderful book that I really uh, thought was really interesting and, and has an echo in your book, which is the book by Johann Hari, Lost Connections. And mm. so Johann Hari is a journalist, British journalist who had been who has a self-declared depressed all his life. And he found various different ways to, to connect because uh, one of your three principles of energizing, the middle one is to connect. And the idea of putting your hands in the mud and connecting with plants, not only is that healthy because that's where we're coming from, you know, getting grounded, but it also creates dirty hands and dirty hands don't touch the dial. So I, I, like, I love the way you <laughs> position that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, connecting with connecting with other people, connecting with uh, your physical movement, connecting with I'm a gardener, connecting with dirt. I I mean, there's nothing more meditative for me than digging my hands into the soil and pulling out carrots or pulling out weeds or what have you. I think that we need to do those types of things more often. And we get so caught up in the busyness of life Mm -hmm. that we forget to. Kind of enjoyed those those moments and you know you mentioned my dog isla uh, she's a year and a half now and we lost our senior dog back in november of 2019 mm. and then had seven months without a dog in the house and it wasn't until covid hit that we really felt that gap because we were no longer doing our walks which was probably our savior in the early days of covid mm. um, you know i wasn't allowed to see my friends but i ran into familiar people at the dog park every day <laughs> but but our dog was you know allowed us to to get out and connect and and even just to connect with her like she's a super cuddly dog and just to have moments of pause your pets will tell you when you need to slow down and i think that if we listen to them they're very intuitive creatures more so than we are you know you've been working too hard mom come and have some sofa time and let's cuddle and well, it always it's works for it's both funny of us.
0: the the english uh, jeu de mots uh, P a u s e and P a w s, uh, so reasons for pause. So um, <laughs> you, you mentioned awareness just now, and you had this whole piece about autopilot versus awareness, and and I think this is a fundamental topic because we 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 sort of justify our busyness. We we got to do these things; they're in the agenda, therefore I must do them. And and I'm wondering. What is it that we? What, what message can we bring to bring awareness to awareness, to bring awareness to our autopilotness, to wake us up to this need? How do we? How do we jumpstart? How do we vault? Give vault to this powerful thought that you have in your book.
1: Yeah, I mean. <sighs> I think that at the front end of the book, I think before we dig into goals and all the things that we want for ourselves, we do need to pause long enough to flip the switch um, to get off of autopilot. Because most of us, it's it's a, it's our brain's def- defense mechanism when we're so busy and there's so much coming at us that we need to process through our devices and through our work and through everything that's happened around us. Our brain will suppress a lot of it and we will move in autopilot through certain aspects of our day. And it was interesting in doing the research in that that, you know, it was a UK study actually where 98% of the respondents said they'll spend some or, some or all of their day on autopilot, making unconscious automatic decisions that don't necessarily align with how they want to work and live right now. And, you know, I've had I've ex- had experience with that myself where I've been traveling so much and, you know, coming home and unpacking and repacking and connecting with people via email because I've been away and then I put my head up. Two or three weeks later, and realize I don't know where I, what I'm doing right now. I need to refocus, I need to get present to am I doing the right work on the right things right now? Um, getting clear, getting present to the mess, as I say, uh, is, is it's not easy. I think many of us don't even realize that we're you know operating on autopilot until something happens that kind of jolts us into the present, and we look around and go, Wait a second, this is not what I had planned you know so I, in the book i have a i have a questionnaire you know uh, to check are you are you operating on on autopilot and you know it's as simple as you know what's your first entry point into the day and if there's anything that i would say to your listeners about how to get off autopilot or just to perhaps slow the entry into an autopilot day is is how you start your day matters um you know if you if you're one of those people high percentage of people around the world uh, who, when they wake up, their first thing is to reach for their smartphone at the edge of their bedside table. I would challenge people to stop doing that. Um, You know, when we use our devices as our entry point into the day, it sets off a chain of autopilot that just has you reacting to whatever is coming at you out of your phone and your email and and all of those things. And so I, I, I would say it's as simple as checking in with yourself before you check in with the world to lie there Ask yourself, how did I sleep? How am I feeling today? What do I want for myself to make today successful? It's you know, simple little questions instead of I'm gonna check the phone, I'm gonna check emails, and all of a sudden your day has been hijacked by whatever's happening in your inbox or in the world news. And it's not a really it's a pretty shocking entry point into the day. Mm. Take control over how you want your day to be and just check in with yourself before you check in with the world.
2: to win an exclusive merchandise package from evergreen podcasts head to evergreenpodcast.com listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so we can't thank you enough for the support now back to the show
0: love it Michelle and I'm mentors now thinking oh shoot um because I my meditation is in my phone and I so I use a guided meditation app I've been doing it for six seven years and and I and I yeah i'm definitely aware of how the notification i saw so my notifications are very clean but i still have five apps that have a little red badge with a number and and i know that sometimes i'm like i'm tempted to look at that rather than just start with my meditation and then my stretching get that the stretching of course is is you know just me with my body but Yeah. All right. I got to think about that.
1: Good awareness on your part, though, because, you know, it are like I said, the devices are designed to hook the neural pathways. So the moment you turn it on, there's something that's saying, look at me, look at me. But if you're able to bypass that and get to the meditation, then that's a great thing. It'll all wait.
0: It's on the the front front page. It's right there. Just bang. All I did was hit that first and don't touch any of those other little monkeys up (laughs)
1: there.
0: Um, So that's wonderful. One of your chapters, uh, you have this lovely saying from Yogi Berra, the, I think he's a baseball manager. Uh, and he said, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up someplace else. Um, duh. Uh, yet so, yeah, so true. Uh, so to set good goals, you need to know who, where you are now. And I thought that was an interesting principle. So to, to be more present with where you are. I was wondering, and I don't feel like you treated this, but do you need to know who you were as well? How important is that in the evaluation of where you want to go in your mind, Michelle?
1: That's a great question. And I don't know that it I don't know that people spend enough time thinking about that because as human beings, I, I do think that we all have the best intentions with our, within ourselves to, you know, to be better, to do better, to have more. But I don't think we necessarily think about who we were before. You know, it's it's who we are right now that we think of, and and we're aspirational to where we want to go. I don't know if that answers your question, but well, I it, it I mean, I
0: think in the end of the day, uh, taking stock of where you are it's so important because otherwise you're just creating dreamy goals. You know. I wanna be a seven foot basketball player. Well, <laughs> not gonna happen, right? Cause I'm not there. And and so you do need to understand where you are. Of course, there's always a, a limiting belief. Well, I'm a, I can't do that because I'm A. You know, that's what sort of-
1: Yes, well, and you know, in setting good goals, you know, I talk about getting present to the mess to begin with. Um, and having belief is a second of my success energy factors. So, you know, you set the goal, but then you have to have belief in yourself that you can crush it. So perhaps the two are somewhat connected, you know, as we're setting the goal. Maybe my goals aren't aspirational enough because I'm not feeling enough of my own you know, belief in myself. It's something I hadn't thought about. So thank you for that. (laughs) You know, maybe we need to reverse engineer the success energy equation. But to my mind, you know, if if we're talking about setting clear and exciting goals and then, you know, harnessing the belief in ourselves uh, and the discipline within us to crush those goals, I think that they will... Keep working in a circle that that to me is success, regardless of the energy piece, which is my fourth factor in the success energy equation. If we set the goal and have belief and do the work, set the goal, have belief and do the work, we're going to experience some level of success. And yes, perhaps sometimes the goals could be bigger or loftier and hopefully once we have a little bit of success with the one goal, we'll start to move our way up there, but. Action is the key, and I'm a big believer in small steps to get there. <laughs> mm, so true. But uh, I, I, Of course, you, know, it, you never.
0: I mean, what's interesting about this sort of iterative process is that it's a messy journey. Success doesn't get happen overnight. It happens over ten years. You know, overnight success happens over ten years. I know some famous person said that. Of the the five qualities that you identify for good goals, because let's say we we we've understood where I am and. What are my goals? The one that really struck uh, struck me and something that I, I like to talk about a lot, but I'd like for you to, to develop is the one about it should be both personal and professional. How do you marry those two ideas together? What's What are the key ingredients to make that happen in a way that's powerful for your good goals?
1: You know, this is one that's still, you know, it's still a work in progress for me to get clear on because... You know, in all of the audiences that I speak to, people are generally—it's easier for them to make professional goals, you know, largely because their organizations might mandate quarterly goals or what have you, um, and because we're often defined by our work. But to my mind, if it's all about the professional, what we end up doing is wistfully looking towards those personal goals that we have for ourselves, saying, "I'll get to it when." And it's those personal goals that make life kind of you know worthwhile and interesting in conjunction with the professional. I think that if it's all it's if it's all work, 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 then we're going to start to resent the work. And and I'll be very clear, I absolutely love what I do. And a lot of my personal goals are tied in with my professional goals. For instance, in the days when I could travel, <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to again. I love travel. And so I I seek out opportunities to speak in places that I'd like to visit, you know, so those are personal and professional goals that are that are connected. I think it's important for us to give ourselves, I I guess, enough self love that we would prioritize some of what's important for us personally, as high as we would, those things that are important to us professionally,
0: right? Because in the professional space is always this sort of material and pragmatic need for that to happen it's sort of hard to go without money to pay the rent yet this idea of the personal fulfillment and everything and and the the the, the parallel topic that i often talk about is actually the the way we have side hustles oh, i wish i could do more of that and make money from that because that's my real passion and and the challenge that people have is is sort of finding something i can love And make money from, and feel like it's me, the full me, the one that's naked in the shower, having meals with friends, and doing this work, and that's all the same me, not this, you know, cloistered me with a tie, or you know, some sort of professional me, and then some personal me, and and I I feel like so often, I think that that particular quality is actually one of of a tremendous well of energy once you tap into it and understand the personal relationship you have into your work not one you're you know justifying and rationalizing but one that you have integrated and feel like it is this is me
1: i agree and if, if you get to spend time whether it's part-time or full-time on those passions it is going to feed you i mean speaking for me was a side hustle you know when i was in my 20s i was doing uh, presentations, you know, for the fitness realm where I got my start, and I just realized I really like being in front of audiences. I like teaching. I like, uh, you know, sharing the spoken word, if you will. And you know, over the course of 15 years of part time, you know, I I started to move it towards a, a full time possibility. But every time I did it, it filled me up in a way that allowed me to keep going on the work that I didn't love. And it, it, every time I spent even a small bit of time in front of those audiences, it was a reminder that I needed to do more of that. It's one of the reasons why I say we need to write down our goals, why we need to put them where we can see them daily. I love vision boards because visuals will are very evocative for us. Because our brains want us to be successful and we need to feed the brain the right information, so if we think up that dream and if we write it down and if we post it where we can see it, this this um, term called generation effect happens within the brain where that thing that you want so dearly has time to move from short-term memory into long-term memory where it can taunt you. <laughs> and I only mean that how, you know I'm laughing, but it's it's very true where you know your listeners can think of that thing that just won't go away, that that desire. You know, for me, it was to stand on a stage and speak. For me, it was to run a marathon. I've only done one, but I wanted to try at least one, oh, well. to write a book. And until I'd done those things, they were just in my head going, Michelle, when are you going to spend some time moving this one forward? Never went away. It becomes that mosquito, you know, that just mm. buzzing around your head. It's like, well, you got to do something. with this.
0: There's the little voice in your, in, which is so often a, a noxious little voice, or you're not good enough, you know. You can't do that and, and sort of it's the naysayer and then there's hopefully the other one i suppose the angel possibly that's saying hey you can you should where are you why are you doing this and, you know maybe mosquito-like qualities uh to the little like tough love maybe yeah would be the nice the nice version of an angel plus mosquito um another area i wanted to get into obviously you have you have such an athletic background you're in canada the open air and all that And you cite in the book a uh, a harvard business review article by jim Larr and tony schwartz that talks about this need to to train as a a professional athlete and i i completely resonate with that i mean i have i was a professional tennis player i played a lot of sports in my life and i i continue to think of my physical hygiene and fitness as a relevant part to who i am and, and how i manage my energies I was wondering to what extent, because in the end of the day, it almost could feel a maybe sportist to suggest that in order to survive in a competitive corporate world, you need to do sports. Or is it just you need to look at them and say, that's what I should be like?
1: Well, I mean, the concept of the corporate athlete. Is it it is yes, taking care of your physical health, but it's recognizing that as a corporate athlete, your instrument for success is your brain. And this is a mat that your brain is a massively energy hungry or organ that you know it represents just two to three percent of your body's weight, but it sucks upwards of 25 to 30 percent of your body's energy, you know, via glucose, blood sugars, you know, the its main fuel. So as as athletes that are in movement, whether it's tennis or in my case, mountain biking or or snowboarding, you have a certain amount of, of energy before you need to physically stop and rest because your physical body says, you know what, I'm tapped. We take that rest. We replenish, we eat, we sleep, we do all the things we need to do to nourish the physical body so we can move again effectively. But as corporate athletes, we work, 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 work. Our vessel for success, our brain drains all of the energy. And we are now, you know, our body sends us signs that we need to take that break. And it can be in the form of reading the same sentence over, uh, over and over again, or stretching or distracting. And we ignore those signs. And we just keep working. We'll drink coffee, we'll eat a sugary snack or simple carbohydrates and feed the stress, but we will keep on working. So our productivity declines, but we tell ourselves I'm fine. I'm getting this done. Work, work, work. So I think that, you know, the the concept of the corporate athlete is to is to listen to what your mind and body are telling you it needs throughout your workday and take your darn breaks. You know, you know, that's part of one of the uh, energy uh, pathways that I talk about is to recover effectively to, Pause throughout the day and give your brain um, a chance to replenish and and you know eat some fuel, uh, go outside and breathe some fresh air. The impact of that on your productivity is remarkable, and yet we ignore that very simple workday hack to take our breaks <laughs> and to replenish. To you know, to, yeah. So it's it's it seems simple.
0: <laughs> it is. I lo- I loved your sound effects. That's what stimulated me to add that one in. <laughs> Um, so, well, I, I, it just reminded me of a um, an interview I did with a, a rugby player, played international rugby, and how he Lee Mears, who played for the British Lions, how he integrated into his life so many of these elements in order for him to be a professional athlete, and and things like mental health. Uh, are, are now beginning to be part of this. And we've, I think it's amazing how over the last few years, really feel like there's been acceleration to accepting this. The one uh, I, I, since you sent me kindly your book, I, I got a chance to to scan also for how many times you use the word sleep. And, and, and you, you have over 100 times the word sleep. And it strikes me how how this is such a relevant topic, but in business, we still are shit at helping uh, our colleagues, employees, our teams sleep. We don't talk about it. At best, we we might talk to our spouse and say, how did you sleep? Okay, and maybe there's a discussion around that, but at work, you don't come in, oh, hi, Michelle, how are you? How did you sleep last night, Michelle? And you know, oh, do you want to take a nap? No, these topics are are just verboten in the work environment yep. and yet it's so important yep. for us.
1: I think it's the most um underappreciated uh, competitive edge that we could have in work and in life is to is to let our bodies rest properly. I mean, it's when it's when we sleep that our body repairs itself from the stress of the day. It's when we sleep that our cells, uh, you know, get the, our glymphatic system in our brain gets bathed so that it cleans out all the toxins and our body releases proteins that clear out the cortisol and all of those things that we take so for granted. And and uh, yet we view sleep as a luxury that will fit in when we have time. I, I'm a big promo- proponent. I mean, I I worked from home before the pandemic. I will work from home after the pandemic. I, I'm a big proponent of naps. <laughs> and, You know, even in the workplace, I think that if you're so tired that you're not doing your best work, what would be the shame in putting your head down on your desk? And I would say in plain view and having a power nap, because once you come out of that nap, you guaranteed your productivity is going to improve. And yet, as you said, it's verboten for us to, you know, admit that we're tired or that we're not firing on all cylinders, you know, all hours of the day. But This physical body and the brilliant mind in it needs rest. And uh, and, especially nowadays, you know, with the influx of all the technology and all that, it's tiring us out more than we, uh, than we, than we notice. And, you know, sleep is one of the ways I think it's, uh, it's, it's not only is it better for your cognitive health, but it's better for your physical health and mental and emotional health. It's better for your energy overall. I, I would I'm have to say
0: it, it's the it's the thing that's been most contaminated by the twenty first and a quarter century stress.
1: Hundred percent. I'm sure yeah. it's there's
0: always been stresses in sleep, and you know whether it was an animal that might wake you up and or you know and be dangerous, and then it could have been a tribe next door, and, and you know through the years, uh, and then we've had different sleep methods and patterns, and I know that I. I'm I'm a I was lousy at this, and but I went to university in America and I studied sleep. It was actually an academic topic in the mid '80s, and I I, I became intrigued by it. And I can't say I I walk the talk. Uh, certainly, you know, many years I wasn't. But I I wish that more leaders would set the example, not only because they're older and it's probably more. Typical for the bodies to wind down after lunch for a postprandial sleep, but also to demonstrate it, like you say, in the open, so that other members of the team, even if they're younger, so be it, allow them to have sleep.
1: Yeah, and once they get that uh, opportunity to experiment with it, they'll realize just how effective it is. I know that Arianna Huffington, uh, in her book uh, Thrive, she she you know had a mental health physical breakdown that really forced her to revisit uh how she took care of herself and she's one of those CEOs that will sleep in her office with her big you know window screen visible right on the sofa there so that her teams can see she's they've also got nap rooms in Huffpost and i think that that's to be applauded and, and you know some of the major think tanks do have sleep pods in their, in their organizations. And I think that that should become more of the, the norm. I don't think totally people agree. abuse them the way people think that they will. Of course not.
0: And, and I mean, I think basically the abuse is completely the way around. That the abuse of employees and the exploitation without being slavery, but you know this notion of exploiting human resources is still the majority mindset. And, and even though the pandemic has been here, I, I hope, anyway, that we'll we'll find a way to to lean into this. I want to add one last question, which is turning from good goals to great goals. What distinguishes a great goal from a good goal?
1: Great goals, to me, are goals that you've thought of for yourself, separate separate from other people in your life. So we can create goals that. I'm taking my husband into account, I'm taking my partner into account, I'm considering my kids, instead of really getting to the core of ourselves and saying, what is it that excites me separate from everyone else? So the goal needs to resonate within you. And I also think that the goal needs to be kind of thrilling enough and big enough that it's going to change you. And it's that excitement, I think, that makes us hopefully want to, spend time on it you know angela duckworth talks about that grit is that ability to stick with that long term goal long enough to see it through to fruition because when you do something has to change you become a different person because of the work that you've done whether for me it was running the marathon or writing book number 1 i can't go back after that i'm now a changed person because i've stepped outside my comfort zone and done something that excited me and scared me just a bit you know, because if it doesn't scare you just a bit, I don't think the goal is big enough. If it scares you too much, it's going to draw you back into your comfort zone. So we have to be aware of that balance between excitement and fear. Um, make it a goal that's personal and resonant for you and, and and thrilling for the person that you'll become, you know, when when you reach it. And it can happen in small steps.
0: <laughs> so transformational is the word that I, I'm thinking as I as I listen. I love to it. I know, love it what you just said, uh, that was lovely, Michelle. So do tell us, how can people get your wonderful book, The Success Energy Equation, and uh, of course, follow you, catch up with what you're writing, because obviously you write uh, on top of your books um, and and um, let us know what's the best way to follow you.
1: Well, certainly the world over, you can find my book on Amazon, of course. Um, in Canada and North America, you can, uh, find you know i will send you a signed copy it's uh, if you uh, connect with me via successenergybook.com and via that website you can connect to my speaking site and say hi there and sign up for my socials and all that successenergybook.com
0: and also with your name of course michelle Cederberg c e d e r b e r g um easy enough to find you because there ain't there can't be that many uh, I'm sure there are, but I can't be, I mean, I suppose, but there can't be that many of you like you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Michelle. Carry on. Say hi to Isla, and um, and I look forward to staying connected with you.
1: Thanks so much for your time today, Minter.
0: Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show or would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minter Dialogue. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on mintodal.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote. It's Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. <laughs>